This episode is brought to you by JLL. Get an insider view into the world of commercial real estate with JLL's podcast, Trends and Insights, the Future of Commercial Real Estate. Whether you're curious about making cities more sustainable, the evolution of office space, or AI opportunities, this podcast will help keep you a step ahead. Tune in for candid conversations with business leaders about the biggest trends impacting how we live, work, and play. Subscribe to Trends and Insights now at jll.com slash podcast. The French History Podcast is brought to you by Evergreen Podcasts. History, pop culture, news, whatever it is you're looking for, Evergreen has the best of it. Have you made your parents proud lately with your accomplishments? Then don't let them listen to this episode, because we're talking about Valérie André, a neurosurgeon and helicopter pilot who served with overwhelming distinction in war, saving countless soldiers and civilians. On her 54th birthday, André became France's first female general, while not long after, she was inducted into the Legion of Honor. Her story is told in the book Helicopter Heroine, Valérie André, Surgeon, Pioneer Rescue Pilot, and Her Courage Under Fire by Charles Morgan Evans. Evans is a writer based in Coos Bay, Oregon, and Reno, Nevada. He has known Valerie André for over 20 years and worked from numerous primary sources while researching his book. He is also the author of The War of the Aeronauts, A History of Ballooning in the Civil War. Evans is also a graduate with a Master of Arts degree in History from San Francisco State University and the founding curator of the Hiller Aviation Museum in Northern California. Today, we'll be talking about his longtime friend and a personal hero to many. Thank you so much for being on the show, Charles Morgan Evans. Your book, Helicopter Heroine, Valérie André, Surgeon, Pioneer, Rescue Pilot, and Her Courage Under Fire, is not just a great scholarly work, but it is very, very entertaining. I think that a lot of people are going to be drawn to this work because it's not just that the story itself is incredible, but you really found someone who was a fascinating figure who was involved in so many incredible events and who herself was such a stirring person to learn about. How did you get into this topic and what made you want to write a book about Valérie André? Well, that's an excellent question. Many years ago in the 1990s, when I was working on my uh, master's degree at San Francisco State University, I was able to get a job working for a man named Stanley Hiller, who had a museum in Redwood City, California, just slightly south of San Francisco. And uh, Stanley Hiller was one of the founders of the um, American helicopter industry. He built his first helicopter when he was 19 years old back in 1944 when he was going to the University of California at Berkeley. So at the time, he needed a curator for his museum, and I applied for the position. 
And uh, when I was uh, first set loose in the museum, my first day there, and it was an incredible museum. It was in a warehouse in Redwood City, kind of nondescript. And we had about 45 aircraft in the, in the museum 40, of all different sizes, some really small, some big, mostly as helicopters. One of the things I saw that first day I was there with this woman standing in front of a helicopter, a rather petite woman wearing a floppy field hat and khaki overalls, and I wondered who she was. And that sparked my curiosity, and I asked Stanley Hiller about her, and he told me that uh, she was a rescue pilot. Her name was Valerie Andre, and uh, she had uh, served in Vietnam during the French Indochina War. She saved many lives. He, he didn't. He knew a lot about her story. Uh, obviously, it was a big publicity coup to have her use his helicopter back in the early 1950s. He had a factory that was located in Palo Alto at the t- uh, back in the 19, late 1940s up into the mid 1960s. And uh, many of his uh, most of his customers were military, either the U.S. military or international military. And uh, along with civilians, too, he also sold civilian aircraft as well. But uh, it was sort of split between military and civilian back then. So to have someone use his helicopter uh, for something positive like uh, medical rescue was something that he was quite proud of. The 1990s must have been a very different time. Historians being able to get jobs just like that. Nowadays, we do podcasts. You deal a lot with her upbringing what was life like for a young woman in interwar Alsace? What led her to go down the life path that she chose? Well, that's another great question because uh, when she was a very young girl, she was born in 1922, April 21st, 1922, and she's still with us today. She's 101 and a half now, and she lives uh, just outside of Paris, but we'll get to that later. Uh, But in her early life, uh, she had the remarkable opportunity to uh, see Maurice Hiltz, who was one of the uh, premier French women aviators of her time, come to the aerodrome in Strasbourg, where she lived in 1932, I believe. Valerie was only 10 years old at the time, but she became fascinated with the idea of aviation. She became a fanatic, a fanatique, as they say. And uh, she... uh, just gravitated to the idea of wanting to become a pilot. She collected all sorts of uh, aviation magazines from the period. Uh, she followed all the uh, aviators, the famous ones, even uh, people like Amelia Earhart were quite influential in her early upbringing and her early life. In fact, one time she wanted to take lessons and she said that uh, this was uh, just before the outbreak of World War II. And she said that uh, young men uh, were allowed to take uh lessons for civil defense for free, but young women would have to uh, find a way to pay for lessons if they wanted to learn how to fly. And she did. She actually did tutoring in uh, different subjects like science and math and uh, was able to raise enough money to uh, pay for an instructor to teach her how to fly. But this was sometime around August of uh, 1939 when she was actually taking her first flight lessons. And of course, the war broke out the following month and It pretty much dashed her hopes for the time being, at least from 1939 on until after the war. When World War II breaks out, Valérie proves to be incredibly resourceful, despite all the turmoil of the invasion and occupation. How did she get through the war? 
Oh, that's an incredible story in its own. A lot of my book is devoted to that story because uh, she showed incredible courage and resourcefulness. When the Germans occupied France uh, beginning in 1940, uh, Alsace-Lorraine, Strasbourg, Alsace-Lorraine, the entire region reverted back to German control. It was considered a forbidden zone and forbidden to leave that area altogether. Her family, particularly her father, was against her leaving that area. But what she wanted to do was, by the by, this time, she was determined also to become a doctor. She was, like I said, fascinated also with sciences in general. And she wanted to attend the University of Strasbourg, but that was impossible because uh, the Germans had uh, taken control of the university, had reverted back to a German-based university under the Reich. And uh, the faculty that had taught there had fled. They actually had gone to Clermont-Ferrand, uh, just before the uh, end of uh, the German invasion of France. And uh, again, as I mentioned, this was an, it was forbidden to leave that part of uh, France for any other part without authorization to any other part of France or any other part of Europe for that matter at that time. So very clandestinely, she left. She went with a friend of hers. Uh, they were able to get by through German, you know, escape through German border control and obviously eventually got to Clermont-Ferrand, but uh, where she started her medical studies, but it was very, under quite du- uh, a situation of duress. She uh, experienced a raid in 1942 where many of her classmates and their professors were arrested. Some actually deported to Germany to the concentration camps. Some actually shot on the spot that day. Her landlord was even uh, arrested uh, later that week she had to fly, eventually flee to Paris to live underground until the liberation in 1944. And eventually she uh, was able to get her records uh, from the university at Clermont-Ferrand transferred to uh, the University of Paris to continue her medical studies. But during an entire period of time, she had to live underground uh, uh, under under threat of uh, deportation to labor camps in Germany because she was definitely considered a criminal under the German occupation uh, regulations. Now we get to the heart of your book, which was the first Indochina war. How did Valerie end up in another war zone on the other side of the world? (laughs) Well, when the liberation came in 1944, uh, she was in Paris and uh, as you know with, from your uh, familiarity with French history, it was the French, uh, the free French who actually were the first to march into Paris and liberate the city. And she was enamored with the, uh, the soldiers. She thought they were uh, an incarnation of modern-day knights, and she called them as such. And she uh, eventually was sent to actually treat some of the wounded uh, under supervision of her professors at the uh, University of Paris. And uh, she became kind of an admirer, I think, of uh, military life and uh, was at the urging of her professors at uh, the university that uh, when she graduated in late 1947, that she might want to volunteer for the uh, medical corps that was going to Indochina at the time. Now, Indochina is three countries uh, that were under French colonial rule after, before and after World War II. And uh, they're made up of Laos, Cambodia, and Vietnam. Vietnam was the 
country that was seeking uh, independence from French colonial rule. They were uh, the, the, the main protagonist or uh, the French regard them as antagonists. It's the history of that war is uh, it's very controversial, as we know today and back then as well. But uh, Ho Chi Minh was the leader of the uh, the nationalist movement that wanted to have separation from France and have independent rule. And they were at war with the French uh, at that time in order to reestablish rule, uh, their you know, self-determination for Vietnam at that time. So medical personnel in Vietnam were in short supply and casualties were incredibly, incredibly high. And so... Um, at, when she arrived in Vietnam in late 1947, her specialty actually was not surgery, but she was pressed into a military hospital in Saigon. She was pressed into service at a military hospital in Saigon, and there was a master surgeon there in neurosurgery who said saw her aptitude and said that we have this tremendous number of head wounds, trauma, trauma, head trauma wounds. And uh, she was pressed into service to become a neurosurgeon. Uh, he would, he trained her and eventually allowed her to be a, um, you know, uh, a solo surgeon, if you will, uh, sometimes working on as many as a hundred cases a month. That was that many casualties that the French were suffering at that time. Being a doctor was not enough for our protagonist Tell us a little bit about how she became a helicopter pilot. Well, there was a step in between uh, being a, a neurosurgeon in military hospitals and becoming a helicopter pilot. The, the French also had a service where they took medical personnel and airdropped them into remote French outposts all throughout the country. Also on the other part, uh, in the other uh, parts of the colony too, Cambodia and Laos. And uh, she would be taking, she, she signed up for training. She volunteered for the service, was a totally volunteer service. And she trained to be airdropped into these remote areas and, uh, and set up a, a, a medical field station, if you will, and to treat not only soldiers, but she also treated civilians as well. Uh, one remarkable period of time for her was when she was airdropped into uh, Laos and uh, she was dropped into this remote uh, village near Monyat. And uh, the people there who saw her, the civilians, I should say, they were, they were an ethnic minority called the Mayo, and they saw her uh, being dropped by a parachute. They referred to her as a woman who came from the sky. They were in such awe of her. And uh, when she was there, she not only just treated the French soldiers, she treated anybody who needed help of any kind. Uh, she said she even had to, uh, she actually had to even perform dental extractions when she was there because that was what people needed. And so uh, she she gained quite a bit of a reputation just from that by uh, uh, being that adventurous, being that brave. Uh, she had to take, uh, when she when she finally returned to uh, Vietnam, uh, to Hanoi, I guess, I think she went back to Hanoi from that, that, diff that particular uh, adventure. Uh, she did most of it on horseback for several days, uh, uh, sometimes being chased by uh, uh, soldiers who were intent on killing the, the, the party, getting her out of there. The woman who came from the sky. That sounds like a good phrase for the title of a book. But in any case, <laughs> yes. So you go into great detail about how she becomes a pilot for a helicopter 
including introducing other characters who are pioneers in these early helicopters. How did she come to get in the pilot's seat for what was a truly novel technology at the time? The first helicopter came to Vietnam in 1950. It was brought there by an Englishman named Alan Bristow, who worked for the French French distributor of Hiller Helicopters in Paris, France. Uh, he was there almost as an exile from England, and that's another story that I cover in my book. But what he was trying to do was trying to make a sale for these helicopters. And he, and as I said, he was the um, uh, he worked for the distributor in France for Hiller. And what he was trying to do is trying to he, he was actually trying to sell the helicopter to anyone when he got to Vietnam. Uh, but really what he was trying to do, what he eventually did was make a demonstration for the French Air Force that this her- helicopter could be used for medical rescue purposes. Um, the Hiller is kind of an interesting helicopter. It's um, rather primitive. Uh, it has absolutely zero protection. And uh, it, at the time, it was not really known for its uh, payload capacity, meaning it didn't carry a lot of weight. But it was maneuverable. It was nimble. It was uh, could get in and out of uh, situations. And this was the thing. Prior to the helicopter coming to Vietnam, the French were reliant on fixed-wing aircraft and oftentimes they would have to land at airstrips. They needed a runway and a, and a, and a landing uh, strip. And what would what? And oftentimes these landing strips would be far away from where the French were actually doing their fighting. These remote outposts I mentioned quite a bit about in my book. And so you would have to, they would have to take uh, a wounded soldier and drive uh, on a truck or a jeep or an ambulance many kilometers before they got to these airstrips. And oftentimes these men were so badly wounded that they might not even survive the over overground transport just to get to a runway. So the helicopter was a big deal, and the French saw it that way, and the and they and the medical corps thought it was going to be a big deal to save more men. That was the entire that was the entire intention. So the helicopter was demonstrated in Saigon, I believe, in April of 1950. Uh, and uh, Valerie Andre was there to see it happen. She was, like, as I said, always a fanatic about uh, anything relating to aviation. And so when she heard about this new fangled aircraft that very few people had actually seen anywhere in the world at this time, going back to the 1940s and early 50s, it was a big deal. And uh, she was determined to sign up for that service. And then there was a lot of prejudice with that. I mean, you know, I, 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 care, I also uh, cover in my book the intense chauvinism, the intense prejudice for a woman, even in the medical profession, where they were in, in dire need of medical personnel to be in a field that was considered a man's uh, milieu. Uh, in her case, she uh, was an officer. She was commissioned as a captain. But even among uh, fellow officers, sometimes she would not be seen as an equal uh, in rank uh, to f- other captains or lieutenants. And uh, it was a frustrating thing for her. But she had tenacity. That was one thing I think you could really uh, sum up Valerie Andre's life is that she was incredibly tenacious. And so as a result, uh, she just said that, here I am. I'm. Um, I weigh less than fifty kilogram, uh, r- roughly ninety-five to hundred pounds, and uh, 
I, uh, these helicopters have terrible, terrible payload capacity in the first place. So instead of maybe taking two wounded soldiers, maybe we can take three uh, wounded soldiers, if if need be, she would. She made the argument, and she said, "Also, I'm a doctor, so if any of these uh, sp- uh, these patients need stabilization, need to be treated at the uh, pickup site, I can probably stabilize them and make, and ensure that they have better chances of survival when they get to a regular military hospital." So she made these arguments, and uh, and there was a lot of things going on at the time that worked in her favor. I mean, she did have a lot of respect uh, from her superior officers because she had actually demonstrated her ability. She had worked in these military hospitals. She had already did the the uh, drop into Laos, uh, the airdrop into Laos I mentioned, and she had taken on quite a bit of uh, respect and uh, for her ability and her again her tenacity. So she was able to um, convince people that she could do this. And one of the persons that she had to one of the people she really had to convince was the founding uh, pilot for the. Uh, French mil- uh, for the French Air Force in for helicopters, uh, ca- Captain Alexis Santini, and Captain Alexis Santini was uh, France's first military helicopter rescue pilot. He had flown flown many fixed wing missions prior to that, and had been in Vietnam roughly since 1946. So he was a very seasoned veteran. He'd been in the, the French Air Force since 1939, uh, when the French Air Force uh, fell into limbo. In after the German occupation in the 1940s, he joined the French resistance and was uh, uh, very instrumental in the liberation of Grenoble, France, in 1944 with his uh, his resistance cell. So he was very instrumental in uh, allowing Valerie to join his rescue uh, helicopter rescue squadron when he was forming the uh, basis for it in 1950 and 1951. Today's episode is brought to you by Factor. Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals make eating better every day easy. With over 35 different options a week to choose from, including keto, calorie smart, vegan, and veggie, and more, there's always something new and delicious to enjoy. With over 55 nutrition-packed add-ons, Factor is your go-to for all your dietary needs. Cheaper than takeout, healthy, and easy to prepare, Factor provides all the restaurant-quality meals, snacks, smoothies, whatever you need, they've got it. And with food ready to heat and eat, you won't have to deal with the regular kitchen mess. Factor is giving out a special deal for our show's listeners. Head to factormeals.com slash FrenchHistory50 and use the code FrenchHistory50 to get 50% off. That again is FrenchHistory50 at factormeals.com slash FrenchHistory50. Sign up now. Your stomach will thank you later. A truly remarkable story how Valerie entered a place which you could even say was no place for a woman and yet was able to take over the skies. During her tenure in Indochina, she had a number of truly incredible episodes. Can you detail for our listeners any particularly 
fascinating chapters or episodes in her life? Oh, there's many. I mean, there truly is many. I start my book off with a very interesting episode that she experienced during her career where she came in for what she thought was a routine pickup of a wounded Vietnamese soldier who was out, who was fighting with the French at the time. And that's another interesting story, too, that I bring into this whole story about the Vietnam War in France is that it was not just uh, the French fighting, but the French were fighting also with the, the Vietnamese uh, against the well, that's another story we'll get into later, possibly. But let me get back to Valerie Andre. This story was about how she was picking up a wounded Vietnamese soldier who was fighting along with the French. He had a head wound, and uh, she wanted to make sure that he was completely sedated before they loaded him onto helicopter. And it turned out that he wasn't. Uh, he woke up uh, in mid-flight on their way back to uh, Hanoi. And he started to wrestle for controls, uh, control of the helicopter. Now, you have to imagine what these helicopters were like. They had side litters on, uh, that uh, carried the, the wounded. If you've ever seen the, the television show MASH, uh, you might have an idea of what these uh, helicopters looked like. And the MASH show, they were Bell 47s. But the Hiller UH-12 is very similar. They have these outboard stretchers. They call them litters. And they carry these, uh, they carry the wounded. Well, in this case, um, this young man woke up on the flight back to Hanoi and started to wrestle for the foot controls on the helicopter. And Valerie Andre had to just uh, work her best to just uh, keep the helicopter in flight. Uh, there were times that it was just really almost totally out of her control. He was panicking. He didn't understand where he was. He didn't understand why he was in a, in a helicopter flying anywhere and uh he just panicked and uh it was lucky for her that uh as, as she said that many times the, the head uh, the head wound cases sometimes wake up and oftentimes they just uh, pass out once again in this case she was very fortunate that they passed out but there were other cases um where she was sometimes stuck behind enemy lines uh one time a uh, mechanical failure happened with the helicopter and she was dropped in the middle of a zone where she wasn't sure if she would be picked up by uh, the enemy Viet Minh that uh, the French were fighting. And she was lucky that uh, eventually um, some French, uh, French soldiers found her and were they able to tow the helicopter back into a friendly village where they were able to repair it and fly out the next day. Other times uh, she was sometimes uh, uh, fl flew into areas that were inundated by rain, which is very, very common in Vietnam, where you have uh, these torrential rainstorms that just flood everything. And uh, the helicopter landed in mud, uh, almost up to its belly pan. And uh, she had to extricate herself from that. There was one time on the uh, tarmac at the uh, airbase near Hanoi that uh, she was suffering from in herself from extreme fatigue and hovering a helicopter uh, just above the uh, tarmac and uh, the engine cut out on it and it came down probably about 10, 15 meters, uh, about 40, 50 feet uh, from the uh, from where she was hovering. It, it came down with such force that it actually bent the tail boom of this helicopter into in half and into a V and uh, she survived it but uh, with no injuries, except that she was suffering at that time from amoebic dysentery. 
but uh, she uh, was never allowed to forget that she uh, damaged this poor helicopter, and she felt very sorry for it as well because she took. It's kind of an interesting story. These helicopters uh, took on a little bit of a character of their own because she uh, babied them and nursed them along too because they were such primitive, uh, sometimes temperamental and oftentimes fragile aircraft that uh, she fell in love with them. But they were not always the easiest companion for her to live with or to work with. Of course, if people want to get all of the fascinating stories, they will have to pick up the book now, can you tell us what was life like for Valerie after Indochina? Valerie left Indochina in, in April, I think, of 1953. I believe it's April 1953. She had already served uh, three tours of duty uh, by that time. And uh, she was sort of forced to go back home. Now, it was interesting prior to that, she was actually for a time being in charge of an air base at, in Hanoi. Uh, her, she's not in charge of an air base. I, I should back that up. She was in charge of her uh, rescue air unit in, uh, in Hanoi uh, at Tonson Nut. And I believe she would probably could be considered one of the first uh, females to have actually commanded uh, an air squadron of rescue, in this case, a rescue squadron. But um, she was sort of uh, told to take a break from Vietnam after 1953. I mean, there was a lot of uh, controversy with her attaining so much in such a little time. Uh, she called it a, a sometimes a threat to the prestige of men. And uh, that's a quote that I have in my book. So she went back to Viet, uh, to, from she left Vietnam in April 53 and went back to France and uh almost immediately wanted to come back to Vietnam, but she wasn't allowed to join up again in her, uh, in the, and at this, at this point. Uh, so she felt bad that some of her comrades uh, were continuing to fight in Vietnam. I think it was sort of a, a remorse that she felt uh, because she wanted to be part of that action. She had been a part of that action all the way going back to late 1947, but she eventually found her way to uh, becoming um a, uh, a medical officer at uh, a, a test facility for uh, advanced aircraft in Bretigny uh, in uh, 1954, I believe. And uh, there she was, she actually met uh, uh, interesting test pilots. She found the, the whole idea of uh, te testing advanced uh, aircraft uh, to be equally fascinating. Uh, she became very good friends with uh, a woman who is really well known also in uh, French aviation circles, Jacqueline Oriol, who uh, was uh, the first French woman to break the sound barrier in 1955 uh, with the uh, French Dassault. Uh, so she was semi-content, I would say, being a medical officer at this test facility, but she really wanted to get back into the action of, uh, of the military. The war in Vietnam ended in 1954 for the French. Uh, they had lost uh, their last major battle at Dien Bien Phu. And uh, according to the, you know, the, the Geneva Peace Agreement, the French had to withdraw uh, their control, not just from Vietnam, but also their control over Laos and Cambodia as well. So the war for the French was over by 1954, but there was another war that the French were going to be involved with, and that was with uh, Algeria, North Africa. And that had started to heat up 
just as the war in Vietnam for the French was winding down, and uh, Valerie wanted very much to become a, uh, a part of the uh, uh, force that was fighting in Algeria at the time. Uh, during one of her breaks from the test facility in Bretigny, she uh, went to Algeria and uh, became a, as an uh, and she was able to become an observer for one of the uh, helicopter squadrons that were uh, working out of uh, Algeria at the time. Now, it's interesting to note that Algeria is concerned the, the war that the French eventually fought in Algeria was considered one of the first helicopter wars. Uh, the, the role of the helicopter had expanded by this time, not not solely limited to medical rescue as it was in Vietnam. It was used as troop transport uh, and also eventually as uh, gunships that the French used in Vietnam, or excuse me, in Algeria. What legacy has this remarkable woman left behind? Well, uh, that's an incredibly uh, good question to ask because... uh, she continued uh, her legacy in Algeria. Uh, she became a, a, a let me let me just touch on what she did in Algeria at the time. She was a uh, she worked as a rescue pilot and a troop transport pilot and flew over two hundred missions, I believe, in Algeria at the time. But she was also a medical officer uh, assigned to um, an air base that the French controlled just outside of Al- Algiers, but. Uh, she rose to the ranks after the war in Algeria wound down in the early 1960s. She continued in the, her career in the military, in the, in the French uh, mil- uh, medical service, and she rose to the ranks. She was the first woman to be promoted to the rank of colonel in 1965, and that was an incredible achievement at, at that point. But what she found in the French um, military medical services was that there was a kind of a quite a bit of an inequity that was uh, prevalent. Uh, there were very few women who were serving in the French military medical services at that time. She they were quite a, they were quite distinctly in the minority. And she saw, and she and she saw that this was not just uh, an inequity, but also unfair. They, at the time, they were allowing uh, men into the uh, French military medical services who had lower entrance exam scores than women who were applying for similar positions. And she saw that as an, an, an incredibly unfair. And so she started to lobby uh, the French assembly to uh, look into this and to and to uh, promulgate a um, more an, a, a equitable solution and allow more women to serve in the uh, French mil- military medical services. And she did this throughout the 1960s and into the 70s. Uh, it started with a quota system that she wasn't entirely satisfied with uh, because they were still le- allowing men into the service with who had uh, lower entrance exams. But eventually, uh, I think her legacy with that was that by uh, what, where we where we stand today in uh, the 21st century, in France, uh, the military, uh, the it's called service de santé, and uh, today service de santé, the me- medical service branch of the French uh, military services, 
has roughly 50% women, 50% men. And that's quite a, that's, that is directly related to Valerie Andre's uh, fight in the 1960s and 1970s to establish um, equality in that service. A truly remarkable story and a truly remarkable life for someone who is still with us at over 100 years old. The book is Helicopter Heroine, Valerie Andre, Surgeon, Pioneer Rescue Pilot, and Her Courage Under Fire. Thank you so much for being on the show. Oh, thank you, Gary. It was great. As always, donations keep the podcast going, so if you would like to make a one-time donation or become a patron, please consider doing so. Thank you very much for your continued support. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. 